0: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com.
1: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.
2: is not reality, it's what you think reality is, okay? It's just a model, but being a model, it's it's smaller and not 100% accurate, and, and there are places where it doesn't quite match the, the, the thing it's supposed to represent.
3: Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a trip of a conversation. It just is. Um, I I ran into this guy, John Higgs's work. He's a British journalist. It got recommended to me on a podcast, which I I mentioned in here. And and I got turned on to a book of his called KLF Chaos, Magic, Music, Money. And it blew my mind a bit. It was just one of the strangest and most intellectually interesting books I've read in uh, this year, years. I don't know. Um, And then I kind of began working my way through Higgs's work. I I read his biography of Timothy Leary, I Have America Surrounded. Stranger Than We Can Imagine, His History of the 20th Century, and he's just a brilliant, strange thinker. And this is a, a weird tour through the things he thinks about, but you will see very much why it has spoken to me so much. It is just right on the mission of this podcast. Uh, this is one of those conversations I don't know how to describe, so I will not try, but it is worth your time. And if you remain open to it, there's a lot of great frames for thinking about the world and at least uh, frames worth thinking about as you move through the world. Um as always, my email, Kleinshow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is John Higgs. John Higgs,
2: welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ezra. Here's my first question for you. Like, who, who the hell are you? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a writer in Britain, uh, and I write a lot of books uh, about, about the history of ideas, really. Um, I, not a huge amount of them have been published over in That is definitely the not what you are writing. Is that not? What am, I, what am I writing? What have you read? You no you. So I've read I started with a KLF
3: book, uh-huh. which blew my mind. Uh-huh. And then I read your Leary biography. Uh-huh. And then I read Stranger Than We Can Imagine. Yeah. So that's been I've read I've read the recent trilogy. But it is very clear to me that you are working on a unified project that is not a history of ideas.
2: Oh, well, I, I'm definitely working on a unified project. Absolutely. But the sense of it being about how ideas shape the world we live in uh, is getting more and more central to it. It's, it's becoming, you know, absolutely key. There's, the, there's this notion that, you know, ideas create culture and culture creates values and values create actions and actions create history. And so if, you, if you're not including, you know, the immaterial in your, in your view of the world, then, then you're missing something very important. Yeah that 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 is fair but but tell me a bit about what unites these three books. What 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 do you see
3: as the message of them? Um, more specifically than ideas matter because something about reading them is a little psychedelic itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's what? a it's a very perspective shifting kind of intellectual history you're doing and I'm yeah. curious where
2: it came from. Well, it's um where it came from. Yeah, um Okay, there's, ma- there's many, many roots into into, into that question. There's this, this Soviet notion, the engineers of the soul, that writers and artists and musicians are the engineers of the soul. Uh, and it seems to me that the creative community of which I'm part of has sort of been failing uh, very, very strongly to give people um, a sense of the world that is worthy of them, that's, that's, that's any good. The amount of people who are just angry and convinced that everyone else is wrong uh, and, and just, just desperately trying to understand why they're the only one who sort of doesn't get it and everyone else are just, you know, uh, are, are just wrong. Uh, it, it just runs through our culture so, so thickly. And I, I think if you want to view my, my work as a project, um, it's, it's a way to sort of sort of dismantle a lot of the, uh, um, the flaws that have gone into, into that sort of worldview. So can I tell you what, I, what I've been taking away from it? Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me how you came to it, actually, Ezra? So always- I was listening to a
3: podcast with Yancey Strickler. Um, it's the oh, Intellectual yes. Explorers Club. And he mentioned, and, and Strickler, he is the founder of Kickstarter, mm-hmm. um, and he writes a great newsletter, and he sort of became differently famous recently for this idea of the dark force theory of the internet. Fascinating guy. People should look him up. He's a, uh, about to publish a book, too. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he mentioned your book offhandedly. And the way he explained it, your book on the KLF, which we will get into, so I apologize to the audience if this is starting a little bit confusingly, <laughs> but believe me, this is all going to be confusing. Um, and the way he explained it, this idea of the idea space and the ways in which ideas become real and develop a life of their own and begin to influence us beyond our beyond our own agency was fascinating to me. So I cracked mm. open that book. Um it was unlike anything I've read in quite some time, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to the Leary biography, which seemed to be its roots. Um, and I've read a couple of biographies of Leary, and I, I thought yours was by far the best. And then I went to the, the more recent one. But before we get into all of them, and we will, the thing that you seem to me to be doing mm-hmm. is finding different ways to explore the idea that in the 20th century, our ability to rely on the idea Of a concrete external reality that other people would be perceiving and roughly the way we are perceiving it crumbled Mm. and that we have not been willing to admit that this happened and in not being willing to admit that this happened we have ended up in a very confusing and chaotic
2: place and you seem to be exploring different stories that make clear this happened. Very much so, yeah. Especially that book about the 20th century, stranger than we can imagine. That's the main sort of theme that runs through it. I've also done a more recent book called *The Future Starts Here*, that looks at the the, where we are now at the 21st century, and so much of it seems to be, um, you know, the 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 last thrash of the dragon's tail, really. The the um, the that that sort of concrete individualistic sort of uh, single reality, uh, people who grew up with that idea just lashing out and, and trying and try to make sense of where we are now. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really key core idea, I think, that once, once, you, once you've got, it unlocks so many other things.
3: So I, I'm American. I'd never heard of the KLF before. Mm. I think probably most of my audience does not. Who are the KLF? What did they do? Why did you decide to write about them?
2: Well, mainly because most people have never heard of them, even though the fact that they were, in around 1991, you know, the biggest selling singles band in the in the world. Um, you know, they had awards, they had, you know, critical acclaim, uh, and they just decided to step back. And They being independent, they were able to delete all their records, at least in the UK, at least. So they, they no longer appear on, you know, um, film soundtracks or adverts or anything like that. And they sort of attempted to sort of remove themselves from musical history and they they almost did they almost got away with it except they still had the money they still had the money they made they had about a million pounds um and for reasons that they were never able to explain they just took that money and they got on a small plane and they flew to the isle of jura in the scottish hebrides and just after midnight on the the 23rd of august 1994 uh they went into this sort of abandoned boathouse uh by the edge of this island uh, and they just opened the suitcase and they took the money out and they set fire to it and they just set fire to the whole million pounds and it's It's one thing to start burning a million pounds. It's quite another to actually finish. You know, it took an hour or so to sort of burn all this. And we're never able um, to explain why. And this just sort of stuck in my craw. I just, when I heard about this, I just, it just, it was an act that didn't, that wasn't contained in my philosophy. I had no way of framing it. I had no way of sort of understanding it. And I think we have a natural bias to when we come across something that just doesn't fit how we understand the world to just ignore it and just to move on and which is what most people did I mean this was I wrote my book about 17 years uh, afterwards but that's because it had been bugging me it'd been bugging me for for 17 years and I wanted to try and find um a philosophy that would sort of contain this act and I knew just doing a regular music biography wasn't going to work because many journalists have interviewed them and asked them about it, and no one's got any closer. No one's got any wiser. So it seemed important to take a step back and try and understand the the culture around them, the ideas that were influencing them, um, and and so. Although you know, I say the book is about the, this, nineteen nineties dance band, the KLF. Really, it's it's about it's about uh, Alan Moore and it's about Robert Anton Wilson and it's about about Doctor Who. It's about um, idea space. It's about magic. It's about. Um, we're
3: we're going to go through all these things. I have mm-hmm. a, I have a long list, but but I want to note something that you just said. There's uh, a line I've thought about for years now. And I don't remember the name of the guy who said it, but 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 an investor said that all great investments begin with the three words. Huh, that's weird. Yeah, <laughs> and I always thought that's true about a lot of journalism too, uh, a, mm. a lot of thinking, a lot of science. That there is a difference between looking at the world and seeing something that doesn't make sense mm. and just moving on from it. Yeah, um, and looking at the world and seeing something that doesn't make sense and digging into it. Because the, the the other thing I think it was the same guy who said was that the world always makes sense It's you that doesn't understand it. It's never the world doesn't make sense. Like if it's not making sense, your model is the, the one here that is flawed. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: And we don't want that. We don't. We, you know, we. um I talk, I talk a lot about in that book about the concept of reality tunnels, which does come from Timothy Leary and, and Robert Anton Wilson was uh, probably the best writer on the subject. Uh, Can and you I, just say who Robert Anton
3: Wilson is? I think people probably know Timothy Leary, sort of father of the psychedelic revolution, but Robert Anton Wilson is a more obscure figure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was. He was a friend of Timothy Leary. He was. Uh, he was a writer uh in that nineteen seventies psychedelic counterculture world uh, of you know conspiracies and, and drugs and, and all these things that will probably make people go, oh, well, that's, you know, there's no credibility at all there. But to my mind, he's one of the very few people who sort of lived through the 20th century and understood it. Uh, and, and moved through it rather than sort of reaching a point where you become horrified and, and, and you reject things and you start to try and go back to like, you know, before postmodernism or or, or whatever. Robert Anton Wilson, for me, was one of the few people um, who understood the 20th century. So you said something about the KLF here that I want to go back to. Mm. You
3: said that they burnt all this money Yeah. and they could never explain why they did it. And that's an easy line to skip over, but it's actually central to the Book. Because I think that when I, if you had just told me that a rock band burnt a million pounds, I would have said, oh, because they're huge assholes. Yeah. That was (laughs) like, what an irresponsible thing to do. You can give that money away. You can save children. You can, you know, I mean, 1991, you probably would be fighting global warming, but there's a lot you can do with a million pounds, particularly a million pounds in 1991. So that's a lot of money. Yeah. That was very much the common reaction. So when you say they could not explain why they did it, what do you mean beyond like these assholes didn't explain why they did it?
2: Um, yeah, oh, I mean, the I, I do discuss the notion in the book that they're just a pair of attention seeking assholes. Um, you did, but yeah. there's a lot, it is a hypothesis that is considered. <laughs> there is a lot in the musical world, uh, who fit that description, you know, and they they generally don't go around burning a million pounds. It, does, it, it doesn't quite... It's not enough. It's not enough of a, an explanation in itself. I think we can take it for red that it's uh, fair that a, a high proportion of people would consider them a pair of, you know, arseholes for, for, for doing this. Um, but we've all met arseholes and they don't do anything as shocking or interesting or horrifying or wrong or, you know, um, just mind-blowing as this, really. And so they went on a tour asking people why they burnt a million pounds. Oh, yeah. A, f- a film showing. Yes, that's did. weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's fair to say they were in the midst of a bit of a breakdown at that point. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, this was this was the year after they went with a, a guy called Gimpo, who was the, who was their roadie uh, and one journalist just to observe it. Uh, and he had one of those small um, early video cameras. Uh, so he just sort of stood there and. With a slightly shaking hand, just filmed the whole thing, um, and so they had this footage of it, and it's quite—I mean, I don't, it's quite strange the uh, effect it has on people. You know, I've—I've I've done events where there has been a money burner doing money burning in public because there's there's quite a, there's quite a scene of it now. There's quite this this, uh, this money burning scene, and it's seen as. Um, as an an act of sacrifice, as as an act of forgiveness with no hope of getting anything in return. The idea is that all cultures uh, sacrifice figures somewhere. But, you know, normally if you you sacrifice a goat, you know, to, to... Something beyond you—that's um, fine, but it's not really fair on the goat. Sac- burning money is the only form of sacrifice where you're also the victim. It's it's seen in in spiritual circles as as the most ethical form of sacrifice is is, is to burn your own money. Uh, as as weird as all this is, and so I've been in rooms where people have set fire to money, and the effect on people is just extraordinary it's it's there's always someone who'll who'll shout out what about syria or just some random sort of sort of nonsensical sort of sort of things like that it horrifies people it's so it's so wrong by every sort of um cultural understanding that they have um uh, it's just, it's just shocking. It's just the atmosphere just turns cold. It's very weird. There's an interesting thing about the what about Syria, right?
3: And I want to mm. say as somebody who like identifies as an effective altruist, I think what about Syria is the correct question. Yeah. yeah. But it is, it is not one we would ask if rock stars spent a million dollars or I'm sorry, a million pounds on hookers and blow,
2: yeah, right? Absolutely. On cars. Yeah.
3: If they just bought a really nice house, like just a really nice house, That was on a cliff somewhere and it just burnt a ton of energy to be there and it was totally extravagant. And so it's clearly a net negative for the world. Like there would be no chorus of condemnation. And so I just want to note that while I think the what about Syria is correct and like many of us use money in a fundamentally immoral way, Mm. it is an attack we apply to rationalize a sense of offense. It is not something we, most of us, but there are effective Mm. altruists who do apply with
2: enough rigor to make it clear that that is really what we are feeling here yeah absolutely and of course there's nothing to say that these people doing that haven't also been donating you know money to the homeless and, and uh or, or to syria or, or, or you know or whatever in fact they generally tend to be more likely to have given money to charity in the recent past than people who are shocked by what they're doing um i think because I, I think they're thinking about it i think they're thinking about what money is and what it sort of means to them um uh, and you know if you if you do feel that you have contributed what you can to sort of help people and you have 20 quid left and you could go and spend it at the bar or you could sort of do what they view as a sort of a spiritual uh, ritual it's very different than just a, a, a dumb uh, rock star just with no sense of the the value of money but you're, you're using them in the book as this, as what we call, like journals, what they call
3: mule, right? A mule to carry your story. Right, yes. To explore a bunch of very unusual ideas. And and why don't we start with this one? What is Alan Moore's concept of the idea space?
2: Yeah, Alan Moore. I mean, I, I presume you're familiar with, I don't know if your listeners but, are but familiar with But the audience may Moore.
3: not be, so... Give, give a quick capsule of Alan Moore.
2: He is the guy who wrote Watchmen and V for Vendetta. He was one of the, the key comic writers in the 1980s who sort of changed the medium uh, beyond recognition, uh, create the sort of sense that comics could be art, really, could be literate, could be important, could be worthy. He's probably the single most lauded comic writer alive, but he's also known as the one who's, most rejected the uh, the Marvel DC superhero world, the one who's, who's stood away from it as much as he possibly can. He's very critical um, of the fact that, you know, in the 21st century, adults are going to see uh, films about, Superhero stories that were written to entertain eight year olds in the 1960s you know he feels we should have progressed beyond that sort of sort of point uh quite a lot he's a fascinating man he's an absolutely fascinating man and he talks a lot about magic and by magic he defines it uh, in a way that most people would probably not be expecting he defines it as almost um, the same as art really uh he, he descri- describes it as something that uh, uh, occurs in the mind you know or where else would it would be? And he uses magic as a way to understand the effect that uh, art and creativity and imagination uh, has on people and then on the wider world. He looks terrifying. He looks like... um, an angry working-class Gandalf. He's got this huge beard and loads, loads <laughs> of rings on, on every hand. He's an absolutely lovely fan. It friend. is I worth Googling
3: Alan Moore. Um, and actually, you can find on YouTube, you and Alan Moore in conversation. It is oh, worth yeah, just getting yeah, a visual yeah, it's, here if you're in computer. It's worth reading Alan
2: Moore. You know, for my money... Oh, yeah, definitely. He, he is the greatest living English writer. Uh, well, I say that without a doubt. The stuff that he's done is just extraordinary. Um, and I, I if, if people are just... Considering reading Alan Moore, I, don't, I would just push them wholeheartedly. Just try anything, you know. Where do you start?
3: What is your if you if you're considering one Alan Moore work? Where do you start?
2: Oh, I mean, Watchmen would probably be the, the an interesting bet. From Hell, I think would also. I think be a I think Watchmen. One.
3: You need to know too much about comics to
2: know what. Yeah, it's Yeah, maybe you may be right because I'm not I'm not a fan of comics or superheroes. So it's historical importance. Uh, so many people have you know desperately tried to to rip it off. Uh, so, a lot of what was brand new about it may not seem quite so brand new now, thanks to all the sort of yeah. copy and sort of things so say let 's say from hell go and read from hell, from hell which is his, his account of the the Jack the Ripper uh, saga um, but okay, so his definition of magic yes he 's very he uh, and his friends, the late Steve Moore, um, thought a lot uh, about this notion you mentioned idea space. Uh, and, it, and it sort of came from, you know, when he when he was still going out in public and doing conferences, and people would ask him, you know, where do your ideas come from? And you know, and all artists get that question. and They all have some, you know, uh, they brush it off, sort of thing. But he was of the opinion that this was was actually a really good question. You know, if if you know if you're a taxi driver, you understand how the car works, how your engine works. You know, if you're a writer, you should understand how your how your imagination works. But he couldn't find. Any any models of this? Many, any 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 uh, definitions? Uh, and so we started to uh, explore this notion of idea space, which assumes that ideas are real things, real in a different way to you know physical things that we have about it. But you know the the idea of a unicorn is still a real idea of a unicorn, um, and uh, the way that the mind works. Uh, he, he, we use a lot of spatial metaphors, things like the front of your mind or it's on the tip of your tongue or uh, all all these sort of things. Although so they they they're connected uh, in different ways than the real world. So uh, in Britain, we often talk about Lands End to John O'Groats, which is the 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 most southernmost part of Cornwall at the south and the most northernmost part of the Scotland. Scotland. It's the longest part of uh, of. Uh, Distance between two places in Britain, and so they're fu- in real world, in reality, in the material world, they're, they're utterly separate. But because we always link them together uh, in idea space, they're they're sort of close and similar to each other's. Uh, and and the idea of I don't know Madonna or you know Hillary Clinton or, or or someone that everybody knows is kind of a shared thing. But we all have our own secret little corners of idea space of things that are just only known to us. Um, and so I mean. It, there's some some fascinating interviews where he, t- he talks about the about these notions and sort of how how these things work uh which ex- explains a lot of his his drive and 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 his sort of and his sort of work um but the 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 idea that once there's an idea out in idea space then you know lots of people will sort of stumble upon it uh at any one time um the idea of the role of the artist is to sort of Go deeper than than most people, and, and explore further, and and go out into the you know the more uh, uh, the, the the wilderness, and and come back with rarer and more uh, interesting ideas that other people haven't gotten to bring them and share them out to to most people. So, idea idea space is sort of a conceptual model for the work of the mind on on many ways. Is, is this making any sense? It it is, but I think it's
3: important to get at this. There's a banal version of this. Mm-hmm. And a very radical version of this. Mm -hmm. So on one level, the idea space that there is like a conceptual way of thinking, there's a space in which ideas connect to each other. It's like, of course, Mm -hmm. right? That's you could just call that culture. Yeah. He is talking about something different or at least believes in something somewhat different. You are using it in a slightly different way. So talk about where the idea space goes from banal to radical, where it becomes a space that is perhaps not controlled by us. I mean, you, you you say this yourself in the book, that Alan Moore, the place you say, and I'm quoting this a little bit from memory, but I looked at it the other day, that the place where Moore takes us into a controversial territory is the idea that these ideas can in some ways operate us. Yes. That I think the way, the way you are describing the idea space is the space we have agency over. OK, I believe in a connection between Madonna and Hillary Clinton, and certainly there are parts of the idea space that I... Uh, possess, and you know, like, and expand my idea space by talking to you. But you're you're talking about me as somebody exploring a world of ideas, which I think is a very, very common concept. The way you describe this in the KLF is, is a world of ideas acting upon us.
2: Yeah, I get you. Well, the uh, the the notion is that in in the physical world, when something becomes sufficiently complicated, um, it becomes alive. Uh, be, be that you know an insect or a person or or whatever once it, once it 's sufficiently set up it it has its own actions has its own agency it sort of goes off by itself. Uh, the idea was whether that also applied in idea space as well whether an idea could become sufficiently sophisticated to act for all intents and purposes like a living thing because when an idea acts like a living thing it 's very hard to define whether that counts as a living... The difference between a thing that acts as a living thing and a thing that is a living thing, very, very hard to define. <laughs> um, so and, the, and we talk, yeah, to talk a lot about these ideas that seem... You, you to, use
3: Doctor Who as the example of that.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the most sophisticated, detailed, uh, complicated sort of British myths that we have in this country because it's been going since, you know, 1963 and and we all sort of grow up um, watching it and it used to be there'd be a big cliffhanger at the end and you'd be waiting the next week to work out, you know, how the doctor survived in the school round. You'd all be talking about it and you'd, and you'd be imagining it. You'd be trying to work out, you know, how ways he would have survived. You'd be essentially trying to write the next sort of episode in, in your head. Uh, and all the kids grow up doing that. Then became, or a certain percentage of them became writers because they wanted to write Doctor Who. So now Doctor Who is creating the the very thing that it needs to keep going indefinitely, which is people who desperately sort of want to write uh, Doctor Who. And on many different levels that I talk about in the book, it's 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 like a, it just acts like a living thing. It sort of grows. It it sort of evolves. It sort of changes. It it it, um, it has a history. It um, you know, any any way you want to define, it eats people up, you know, the people who've been burnt out sort of using it. It's any way you want to define a living thing, it's very hard not to include... The concept of Doctor Who in that at, at the same time, apart from the fact that it's not material, the fact that it's just purely, it's purely idea space, you know, or or the noosphere, which is a, a phrase I use in, in later books. What what is a noosphere? Um, in well, the there's the it, well, it comes from a, a Jesuit uh, priest in the 1920s, I think, whose name's escaping me. But the the essential idea is there's, there's at, the, at the base of our world we've got the the geosphere, which is the world of you know rocks and uh, and minerals and and above above that we get um the uh biosphere the world of the world of ants plants and animals and stuff and the biosphere sort of grows out of the geosphere and and it and it moves quicker and it's it's more sort of fluid and it's more sort of um it's less sort of solid uh but out of the biosphere also arises the newosphere, which is the world of the immaterial the the world of ideas the world of languages laws you know culture art all these sort of things and again it's it's much more sort of fluid than the the biosphere it sort of grows out of it's this it's these ray you know this this levels of um increasing uh, ethereal stuff that that we, that we have on there. The, the new series, is basically the world of ideas. We'll be right back with John Higgs.
0: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates?
4: Borough.com slash box.
3: So to to now connect the conversations we've been having and and go into the connective tissue of the book, you make the case in the book that the KLF ends up burning this money, and they can't describe or explain even to themselves very much why they did it. And you you make the case that the idea DS space is operating on them that, that there's a bunch happening in the culture around money at that moment that ends up somehow taking a hold of them uh in ways that are almost occult. but but makes sense as you talk about them so can you just talk a, a bit about how that how that grounds into that klf story
2: yeah i mean a, a lot a lot comes to the nature of the two uh guys who who were the klf it was jimmy Courty uh and bill drummond um and i probably sort of unfairly on poor Jimmy Corte, I probably talk more about Bill Drummond in the book because he's the one who, who's most open about his creative process, which is an idea will just sort of appear uh, and and bubble up inside himself. And at the point where most people would they have their, you know, their, their cynical or their rational voice would come in and say, that's a terrible idea. What the hell? Just, you know, that's never going to work. Just kill it, kill it, kill it for good he doesn't do that he sort of lets it sort of go and evolve and grow naturally uh and 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 see what it sort of becomes so lots of really strange and terrible ideas he will that nobody else can understand uh he will be sort of faithful to he will he will um he will allow them to sort of grow and become what they sort of need to be so in nor- in normal circumstances if people said what should we?" What should we do with this money? And the idea of burning it sort of came up. Most people would then immediately sort of scratch that one off the list. But but not not Bill and in this case not Jimmy. They, they just sort of thought about it. Or what does this idea mean? What does it want to be? What does it? How does it impact on this? What it's what um, what attracts us to it? And and you know all all this sort of things. And they. I mean, they do a lot of strange things. They do a lot. There's a big um, music industry uh, awards show over here called the the Brit Awards. and in 1992, I think it was they they'd won the best band and they were supposed to open it and things like this. and they were horrified uh, at this because they had real um, issues with the, the nature of the music industry and really they thought they were supposed to be attacking it and and, and things like that. And the idea came to him that he should chop off his hand in the performance and throw it out into the audience and um again most people wouldn't explore that idea to the level that he did and they you know they they'd had a few years of just in, insane how far did city. he how
3: far did he explore
2: that idea it was it was it was discussed it was discussed seriously um there was i mean they always talked about the one performance they wanted to do was just be to turn up uh, on stage and open a box and have two antique dueling pistols um and then just just shoot each other that was their dream show it's this is why they split up it was around this time it was around the time when he was seriously thinking about chopping us to his hand that they did they realized that they were perhaps not good for each other uh and that splitting up and ending the band and and, and getting out was probably the wisest the wisest move um God, the story, the stories of that band are just, just mad. They're just crazy, um, constantly throughout the throughout the whole thing. And the odd thing was, they had this reputation as being clever media manipulators who would do all these sort of scams to get to get uh, attention and press. And it was so, it was so wrong that idea. They really had no idea what they were doing. They were just sort of following impulses and seeing what was happening, and then uh, something, you know extraordinary and odd or just uh, well whatever happened happened and that that sort of became the story and retroactively it was said that oh yeah they planned that all along but that was really not how they worked in the slightest
3: To, to go back to that story about the the awards show it's actually influenced me in a certain way you have a great paragraph about that so what they ultimately do and this has a particularly grim resonance in america right now but what they ultimately do is they fire a machine gun filled with blanks into the audience of record executives and that is the sign of this very, very uh, intense form of protest. Let's put it that way. Um, putting Pulling it out of the American context of mass shootings for a minute. What happens then is that a bunch of record executives say, that was just a great performance. We loved it. <laughs> and you describe this as a sort of trauma on the band. That yeah. They you have this kind of idea from the situationist that to become to, to to oppose a spectacle is to become part of the spectacle. And I actually ended up quoting this recently. I, I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm a political journalist when I'm not mm-hmm. um, talking to peculiar British writers. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I I wrote about this in a Big Piece doing about the media and Donald Trump, mm. wherein the problem the KLF ran into was that they were trying to critique the the, the, the record industry, but the record industry was completely able to absorb that critique. You have this other great line that to piss on the altar of the church is still to pay homage to the church. And that we often have that issue in our coverage, particularly of Donald Trump, where we will, he will do something terrible. We will try to say and generate all this energy about how terrible it is. But we are like, that energy is part of his spectacle. It's part of his spectacle of conflict with the media, part of his spectacle of conflictual politics. And so we've become Part of his show, even as what we're trying to do, is shut the is show how corrupt and grotesque and racist and bigoted and so on the show has become, and like that's a very hard space to be in to recognize that like you are part of the idea, you are not in control of the idea.
2: Very, very much so. Yeah, I mean, which is why they did what they did, which is to 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 get out of the industry and destroy everything and delete the records and then ultimately burn the money. But that's not a position, you know that. Uh... That, right, that not, it doesn't for work you, for political journalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just burn down the newspapers. <laughs> That'll show him. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but
3: it's an interesting thing. I mean, something you talk about in the book a lot is this idea of being many-modeled. And that oftentimes you'll find yourself doing something and it keeps not working. And when it keeps not working, you there's a tendency to just get angrier and angrier at the world. As opposed to recognizing that your model is missing something, that that you're, you you've begun looking at the world in a way that doesn't make sense any longer, that that is obscuring something, and I mean that's a theme in a number of your books, not mistaking
2: your own your own
3: model of the world for the
2: world itself, definitely. Definitely, and I mean in my in my last book about the twenty first century, um, which is a lot about Generation Z and and the move from the, the postmodern world to the meta modern world and all that sort of stuff, we've basically reached a point. Uh, Culturally, where the the sort of the edge of where we we are is that you know all models are flawed, but some are useful, and and that's the generally sort of you know that's where we are as a culture. All models are flawed, and some are useful, but it's it's, it's a lot of people sort of behind the curve at that, and there's still a lot of people who uh, the people have a psychological need, you know, to be right, who who assure that their model is the one great true model and that everyone else is 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 wrong and you and you'll never meet anyone who agrees with you a hundred percent about everything right there's six billion people in the world they all see things differently they have different sort of experiences different backgrounds different privileges that they all have a different take and the 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 idea that hey actually you've got the the one the one that's actually true and everyone's all wrong you don't have to know not much math to realize that really it's not a very convincing idea at all, you know, The and there is a real sort of fight against recognizing that from particularly the baby boomer generation who sort of grew up before the postmodern period, who sort of grew up in the belief that there was an absolute truth. uh, And, you know, if you didn't have the absolute truth, then you were, you were therefore wrong. uh, And hence an enemy and, you know, must, must be fought. Um, So even you get, I don't know, um, thinkers as different as like Jordan Peterson or Steven Pinker or sort of academically minded sort of people of that sort of generation, they still have this belief that, oh, postmodernism was when everything went wrong, so we need to go back to where we were before that sort of time, and then everything will, will be fine, which is very different to the Robert Anton Wilson, who sort of powered through it and sort of managed to sort of come out of the uh, you know of the other side. One
3: dedicated listeners of the show are going to have just understood in
2: that answer why your
3: work appeals to me so much. The, this idea that the place we're in is all models are wrong, or I'm sorry, all models are flawed, but some of them are useful is very much yeah. I think that the project of this particular um, show. I've been that tracking recently this idea of the meta moderns. This is something that is burbling around kind of the edges of some of the spheres I track.
2: Can you tell me mm-hmm. what the term metamodern means? Sure. Well, I mean, the simplest definition would be it's the thing that came after, you know, postmodernism. We we all accept that the the... The, the last part of the 20th century was generally known uh, by this concept of postmodernism. There's this general sense that we've moved beyond it now. We're sort of we see the flaws in it. We've sort of moved beyond it, uh, and it's a lot of people are trying to define where we are. Uh, and this this notion of metamodernism uh, is is the thing that seems to be seems to be bubbling up and see and seems to be uh, gaining ground, uh, and it, it tends to be defined slightly different from artists to, you know, academics, but there's a, there's a general sense it's about, um, swings between, it's about extremes rather than the center, the center point. Um, it's not about, um, you know, finding the best of both worlds. It's not about finding the, the neat compromise. It's, it's, it's about going to both extremes, uh, to find, Find what's useful in those things, and for those who was raised in the twentieth century, this can be quite scary. I mean, you can you can cer- certainly see it with Brexit and Trump and the the political uh, s- situations in both our countries that these sort of wild stre- uh, swings to the extremes are for me and, and many people in my generation um, quite scary and, 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 and worrying and, and all that sort of thing so the, the Generation Z that's just normal they're just sort of growing up with this sort of thing and you can see this real sort of difference a big part of this is, is the, the huge shift between the Millennials and Generation Z the, um, the, the change in attitudes between those two generations is far more profound and extreme than in bet- you know between me- Millennials and Generation X or Generation X and Baby Boomers or something like that and if you What's, it,
3: what are, what are the changes in attitudes
2: between those generations it's interesting it all seemed to happen a, around the time that uh, the, the smartphones took off and, and kids started going to to high school you know with a with a, a smartphone in their hand and it all sort of became sort of networked. there's this huge increase in, in empathy uh and also anxiety and, and, and mental health issues but the best way to describe it i think is if you um you know the film the breakfast club i do if you watch the if you watch the Breakfast Club with Generation Z, it's fascinating because it makes no sense at all to them, no sense at all. To so me, Generation X, you know, we loved it. Millennials seem to quite like it. Generation Z, they start watching it, and for us, it was you know oh it was these these five kids and and they they have nothing in common but they bond in opposition to this authority figure, uh, Assistant Principal Vernon, who's the bad guy of the thing. First of all, they don't see. The assistant principal as the bad guy because his motive is just well he you know he's this his job he has to Wait, come into school. Can and, I ask real quick? Is sure. It, how,
3: how do you know this? Is this like did you do a focus group and watch Breakfast Club with Generation Z? Did somebody do a yeah? An experiment? I, I did.
2: I did watch Gen- uh, Breakfast Club with Generation <laughs> Z, and so this is a firsthand thing. But it does fit the sort of generational shifts that uh, demographic researchers have been have been reporting i'm not, I'm, I'm not doing the um, you know the difference between weather and climate thing here I'm, I'm aware that i feel i feel this is a valid example that sort of uh, describes a, a more broader sort of shift um I, I i put my hand on my heart and stand up with this sort of <laughs> this analogy <laughs> it's not it's not it's not just a thing i saw once it's it's it's, it's a, but yeah they're just so they 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 don't think the uh, the authority figure is the bad guy, he's just coming into work, he's just trying to make the school run better. He's not a nice guy, he's a you know, he's he's uh, he's maybe comic relief at the best of it. For our generation, the hero was the Judd Nelson character, the Bender, he was called. Uh, and he was he was a complete individual, he did everything by his own rules, you know, he 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 was uh unshakable from you know what he wanted to do and we were just in the 80s we're like oh he's really cool you know he's he's you know he's totally he's he's totally doing it his own way he's so cool The, the generation Z watch it and they just see a guy who's deliberately being cruel to people and go oh that's the bad guy right that's the bad guy judd nelson is playing the bad guy and then they see um Brian, the Brian character, the nerd character. Uh, and towards the end, he sort of uh, confesses that he made a, a, a suicide attempt the previous week. And it's sort of played for laughs because he used a flare gun by mistake. And it's the sort of detail that my generation, we sort of forgot that. We didn't notice. We don't really think much about that when we see, see The Breakfast Club. But to them, clearly, that's the emotional heart of the story. That's that's what matters. And so when the film ends with, you know, Bender walking across the, the, the football field and he punches the air and Simple Minds, Blare out the the generations are like what the what the hell that makes no sense at all what what sort of is this? There's been this real sort of shift uh, in values and the thing is. They're right. That's the annoying thing. They're absolutely right. You know, he was an arsehole. Molly Ringwald wrote an interesting thing about this in The New Yorker, uh, about about how there were scenes in some John Hughes films she did that seemed fine at the time. But looking back, there was one where that Bender character was hiding under the desk from the teacher, uh, and she's a, you know, sixteen year old schoolgirl, and it sort of implied that he touches her inappropriately. And uh Again, this seems sort of fine. And she's trying to get her head around, well, this is obviously wrong. Why didn't we see that um, at the time? You know, this generation immediately see that. They immediately see these things. But but some of this just seems to me to be generational change of mores. I mean, I almost
3: want to back up here because I, I will admit that I'm not, I, I'm more confused, not less now. <laughs> mm.
4: Talk, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, the,
3: the modernism, postmodernism, metamodernism, like how yeah. would you describe like what that trajectory is? I have some sense of it, and I can try, but I think I'm going to get it wrong.
2: Okay, so so backing up a little bit earlier, sort of le- going leading into the sort of modernism period, um, the world was generally hierarchical. Things were sort of understood in their place, and it was it was the it was the single vision of the of the. the the person on top that structured the whole society and and it it didn't really matter what you were like as a person it was more what place you were in the hierarchy that sort of mattered and um i'm talking slightly more european here because you know going up to the first world war this was still world of emperors and czars and, and kaisers and you know there was the ottoman empire the austro-hungarian empire the russian empire german empire chinese british japanese empires it was it was a world of of empires america um is the, is the is the exception here but i mean even so, you might argue that you know with the, I don't know the annexation of the Philippines or the you know the separation of Panama from Colombia. There's there's reasons to, to say that, but culturally, you know, America was 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 different. But for the rest of the world, the First World War was this point where you know the age of empires just ended. It just collapsed. It had been that way for all of history, and all of a sudden it was over. I mean, the Japanese and the the British empires lasted to the end of the the second world war, but generally it it was all sort of gone. And we came into this period where there wasn't this, you know, this one person at the top saying how things were. We came into this growth of individuals, which became many different perspectives. We started to see things from many different points of view. And modernism is trying to sort of find new ways of looking at things to shed new light on them, and also to try and reconcile all these this clash of perspectives. So if you think of cubism, you know, you've got- Postmodernism, to... you mean- no no that's modernism really. Oh that's, this is still modernism. Yeah, okay. that's that, that's mod, sure. that's modernism. It's just it's try, okay. it's, try, it's trying to find new so ways. So modernism of is what comes after the the, the hierarchical animals. sort of world. Okay. And that's, Got it. And, and and that it was and it, it was kind of seen as a an elitist pursuit, but it gradually it sort of filtered through into this sort of postmodern world. Uh, now, I don't know how you want to describe postmodernism. It's usually sort of, it usually has many sort of a straw man sort of uh, definition um, where it means that, oh, n- nothing is true and, you know, everything is equal and all that sort of stuff. It's not. It's that's not a definition that you know any postmodernist would have would have gone through, but it is the recognition that hey, that we've just got an awful lot of different perspectives that can, that we can look at things through, um, and you know, yeah, we have to sort of try and find a way to navigate throughout all these different competing uh, views of the world, um, and there is no single truth in in postmodernism. There is there is no one correct position you know from which everything else sort of makes sense there is no well, the, top and also of the hierarchy. That,
3: that reality is often constructed by these perspectives that often yeah. what we think of as externally valid is in fact something that we have constructed through perspective consensus but if you break that consensus it turns out that wasn't that often wasn't valid and that and I, i'm not a postmodernist scholar but that, I didn't, that that the places where there's a lot of controversy is where postmodernists take that and they say this infuses things you thought were solid if I tell you that, you know, this social moor is, you know, just we have decided, right? Like we have decided in America, you don't burn flags and that like other places might feel differently about that. You're like, okay, like that, I can, I can grok that. And then if I tell you that um, science is socially constructed or certain parts of science are socially constructed, depending on what I mean by that, then people like really blanch.
2: Yeah, sure. I get that. Yeah. And, and it, it always has been that way. It was just, it, we were starting to realize it in the, in the postmodern sort of, the postmodern period, we were starting to, to to see those sort of problems with it, and and those and those those flaws with it. I guess. Um, I suspect you're trying to, to to get to a point that I'm I'm missing slightly with that.
3: No, no, no. I I just wanted to. I I'm I am trying to connect what you were saying to the kind of caricature of it that I think the audience has heard the most. Yeah.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, it's you know it's it's uh, it's I think a postmodernist would say it's certainly. Just because there are many different perspectives on reality, that does not mean that there isn't, you know, a truth out there. It just means we're going to have to work an awful lot harder to have a a, a valid understanding of what it is. I think that's probably the sort of postmodern worldview to try and sort of sum sum it up in, in, in a way like that. But yeah, but we've sort of moved beyond it now to a period where it's sort of taken for granted that uh sure there's all these different uh models. Uh we're not arguing about that anymore. We get oh, we get that now. The question is, what works, right? What's useful? Uh this is this is the sort of meta modern sort of world that we're we're sort of going to. And it and, and this is the thing that sort of swings between the these sort of um extremes. So you can deal with both, you know, sincerity and sort of cynicism or irony or or whatever. It's 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 not it's not Choose a side and stick with it. It's it's you know what tools are needed for what job, and so the question then becomes: Well, what's important? What do we need to do? What's the work that needs to to be done? What's our purpose? You know, what how can we find sort of meaning? Uh, and then we'll use these models as best we can to sort of sort of get there. And that's that sort of more active um, understanding is kind of how I see the difference between metamodernism and postmodernism. Metamodernism is like, well, we got the postmodern thing, we understand that sort of stuff, but we want to do this. How are we sort of going to... And you see it, I mean, climate strikes is, is, is a great example um, with, you know, Greta Thunberg and all the sort of kids coming out around the world. I, I don't know how big that was in America, but over here it was just massive. And it was, it, it, you know, we still had the climate change problem with the millennials, but they weren't doing things like that. They weren't getting up and 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 uh, doing things. And uh, maybe a more accurate uh, example would be the sort of the march for their lives with all the Parkland students, um, because you know you had school shootings for the millennials, but they just sort of you know didn't think there was anything they could do. Once you get Generation Z, you know then they they organised, which I believe was the biggest biggest political march in American history, and and this this huge sort of. Uh, upsurge in in activism and things like that. And obviously, it's not ideal because it becomes politicized. So you get all these kids who've gone through a trauma who start to receive all this, you know, all this hate and attention. And you wouldn't want it any other way. But it's using what they could, what they had that would get a get some form of result. I think you know, I, th- I think this a real sort of shift. And and again, the 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 empathy, this extended circle of empathy. That's come from this generation of sort of you know grown up understanding themselves as part of networks. The 20th century was all about this this growth in individualism, but it was sort of isolated individualism. With the with the generation Z, with the metamodern generation, they just understand that you know who they're connected to, what relationships they have, what their reputation is, are as much part of them you know as their physical body or the or the, the stuff that they own. If you see someone. Out taking a selfie of themselves or maybe out in the street you know if if uh c- certain generations will go oh look at that person taking a picture of themselves to look at themselves that's you know that's really vain that's really vain but younger people will say oh that person they're taking a picture of themselves to sort of to include their friends in the moment to share what they're doing to sort of increase social bonds uh and they don't see it that way so that's a sort of a there's been a shift in whether you, you view the world through the individual lens or through the sort of network, you know, lens. Uh, and this is the generation sort of growing up now that is, understands that individualism is, it doesn't describe anything, you know, it doesn't explain how things work either biologically or sociologically or psychologically or emotionally or culturally. It's, it's just too poor a model to use. So this this moving beyond that into into this sort of network group sort of sort of understanding. Um, this, this is probably in no way helping you get your head around metamodernism at all, is it?
3: No. Well, I I actually do find it useful. I mean, I'm as speaking as an elder millennial, a little less I think uh, optimistic. Well, optimistic is probably the right word, the wrong word, but I'm a. I'm a little more worried about Generation Z. Uh, I, I, I don't see all of the trends as quite as positive, but I do think the the overall thing you're saying tracks with what what, what I've been seeing, which is this, this idea that we went from that we are watching a politics in a way of understanding the world move from a, a sort of modernist sense and and, and a, a, a longstanding sense that there is a kind of objective truth out there uh, in a lot of in a lot of places, and move through the postmodernist period of Really, the project was about breaking down that truth. While you, to, to, to the point you make, people are actually postmodernists and think about it seriously, have a more nuanced view of this. I think the the belief that the project of postmodernism was about introducing doubt, infusing institutions and infusing social mores with doubt um, and with suspicion. I think that's that's somewhat right, and I think something that you demonstrate very well in your books is the number of things that began to quake in the 20th century. I mean, I actually love the the way you sort of use the example of physics here, of just in the 20th century, develop these competing physics models, all of which seem to be correct at some level and all of which contradict each other. And the people developing, them don't even like them, right? Like the, 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 <laughs> the level of fury at quantum physics is, I mean, it's a really, it's a fascinating and profound thing. And then the metamodernism hmm. seems a little bit more comfortable with this idea that, well, maybe nothing is going to be right, but that doesn't make it useless. This is a good time, if it's ever a good time, to take a break. So we'll be right back with John
4: Higgs. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper-rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
3: I think there's actually a very nice bridge to your Timothy Leary biography, which which gets at some of this stuff, I think, in interesting ways, particularly the way he moves through the psychedelic 60s into eventually this sort of networked model, right? You, he, he contains a lot in him. Um,
2: why did you decide to
3: write a biography of
2: Leary? Well, I mean, it just came about by circumstances, really. Um, I was friends with a, an old uh, a British beat writer called Brian Barrett, um, who was just the most amazing man everyone who knew him just loved him to pieces Uh, and he was very close with Timothy Leary for a a period um, when after Leary had escaped from jail and was on the run in Algiers and was with the Black Panthers uh, that's when Brian knew him and then Leary had just escaped from the Black Panthers, and so he was in Switzerland with the, the, his arms dealer, and, and Brian was there helping him write books at the, at the time. Timothy Leary's life is just the most unbelievable string of outrageous sort of circumstances that you can that you can imagine. It's uh, I can't wait for someone to finally get that on film because his his life is is quite something else. But as I say, my friend uh, Brian uh, was very close to Timothy Leary. Not so much in the eighties. Brian got very much into heroin, uh, sorry heroin, and uh, Leary was. I mean none of it but um he would you know he'd tell me all these stories about the things that they were doing um and whenever i heard leary being mentioned uh, you know in the in the the media or something like that i'd be always like oh yeah no i don't don't think that's you don't think you've quite got the context right there that's that's not quite how it was and and i I just think god someone really needs to write a book about timothy leary because Rosemary Leary just died around that time. This was this was the early two thousands, um, and after thinking that for a year, it was just the dawning realization that oh God, it's me, isn't it? It's me. I'm the one who's going to have to write this uh, this book, and I did. You know, I I I I left a job and I I, I went over to America to start researching it, and I you know, when I, I wrote this book, I have America surrounded, um, and it was more. It was more because it presented itself as a thing that was necessary and and, and sort of had to be done um, that I'd sort of stumbled into more, more than anything else.
3: So I've always been fascinated by Leary and I've read a couple biographies of Leary and yours was the first one that I felt it saw the world from his perspective. Yeah. It was the first one that actually helped me understand the way he thought. And there was this key, this quote you had that I'd not read anywhere else Um, And this is him talking after uh, about the effect that his first major LSD trip had on him. Mm -hmm. Um, But he says, afterwards, I've never been able to take myself, my mind or the social world quite so seriously. Since that time, I've been acutely aware that everything I perceive, everything within and around me is a creation of my own consciousness and that everyone lives in a neural cocoon of private reality. From that day, I have never lost a sense that I'm an actor surrounded by characters, props and sets for the drama being written in my own brain. And that just stopped me short. Sometimes if you read accounts of people taking psychedelics, you'll come across this exact feeling described as a kind of like a bad trip mental illness thing that like they they lose their sense of reality, that everything becomes actors on a stage. Yeah, yeah. Like you you will see this. This is actually a common trope. Sure. And it is almost everywhere described as a terrifying thing that happens and takes people time to recover from. Yeah. And like what what was so fascinating to me about your book is that Leary is somebody who has that experience, never recovers from it but somehow is able to live within it as a kind of superpower um or like a demonic power you can look at it both ways but that was fascinating
2: to yeah, me yeah yeah No, he, he he definitely got the joke he got the cosmic joke he saw um he was yeah i mean there's a lot of ideas that come from Leary that are really useful that are really the idea of reality tunnels we we touched on earlier um which i'll I should probably just briefly try to uh, define um we all live in a reality tunnel but your reality tunnel is not reality it's what you think reality is okay but it's just a model but being a model it's it's smaller and not 100 percent accurate and and there are places where it doesn't quite match the, the the thing it's supposed to represent but because we live inside the reality tunnel we don't know where those bits are that it's not accurate so we don't notice how our our view of the world our worldview doesn't match um the real world sort of exactly and when we see when something happens um that entirely fits with our reality tunnel you know we we accept it straight away we we don't question it we just go yep that's fine we we'll 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 suck it all down um and when something happens that contradicts it it's like we deny it basically we just don't notice it. We just can't, can't sort of see it. Uh, and there's, there's various sort of psychological biases that sort of go into this, but they're very much being used uh, politically, you know, these days. You know, you know, um, if, you're, if you're thinking sort of the, you know, the, the Russians and the, the troll farms and all that sort of stuff, they will come up with untrue things that they know full well that, you know, such and such a political group will just accept without question, you know, because it matches perfectly what they're doing. And so being aware of that, of being aware of your reality, reality tunnel is the first step in sort of, you know, trying to be responsible for it and making it uh, more accurate. You know, it's, it's never going to be perfect, but you, you know, you keep, you, you keep trying to fix flaws in it. You, you, it's, you know, it's a constant sort of doer upper and stuff like that. And that I think ties in uh, with a lot of what you were saying, that, that, that notion. Does that, does that all sound familiar to you?
3: Yeah, absolutely, very much. I mean, but this is why, this is one reason he's a fascinating character. I, I think most people who read about him in my, my generation, he's become a villain, right? Timothy yeah. Leary oh, yeah, yeah, a guy yeah, definitely, who definitely. took the psychedelic revolution, turned it into this kind of like like countercultural monster got all the got the psychedelics rendered illegal and so on and so forth. And and I think there's some truth to that. Um there's also this other I, I, I think of there's him. less truth to that. Talk, <laughs> to talk that, through that because it. I think that's actually how most people know him. And and most of the books I had
2: read about him largely buy into that theory. Yeah. I mean it's it's the notion that a lot of people in the psychedelic world have that oh if only Timothy Leary hadn't Come along then psychedelic research would be entirely you know respectable uh, and uh, no one would have gone in any way strange uh, and we would all be sort of you know our, our families would all be delighted that we were so heavily into psychedelics and 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 things like that and it 's just not the case because you know, psychedelics, they're just such a tricksy sort of thing. I mean, we were talking earlier about sort of uh, ideas that have their own volition and their own sort of agency. If you wanted to say a, a drug like LSD was a sort of a, a living thing with a sort of a mind of its own, I think that's 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 probably quite a strong case uh, for that one. It is just a trickster. It's an tr- absolute trickster chemical. Uh, and it, so it was always going to be someone was going to, you know, it was, it was always going to cause trouble, you know. And people use a lot of Leary's ideas Without crediting him, like the most important part of you know psychedelic. First thing you need to know is set and setting. You know that uh, that where you are, that you, what your mindset is, what the. The people around you are is going to have an effect on on a drug, so uh, on a psychedelic trip. So yeah, if you don't want a bad trip, and you need to pay attention to set and setting, and it's things like that what we get from Leary um, that people who dismiss Leary will all will you know will cling on to all his ideas and, and and use them like that without sort of crediting um, crediting it. Yeah, what I hope came across in the book was it was just all such a whirlwind those those years those those fast years, and it's very easy to sort of Look back with hindsight and and think, uh, oh well, yes, he should have, uh, he should have done this differently there. But when when you realise what the context of every decision was and the, all the pressures were and the you know all all the changes that they were sort of going through, it's it's you know, uh, no one was going to sort of walk that type rope type um, you know immaculately. Um, and there's been a when I haven't read the Robert Greenfield book because when I was writing my book. I'd go and talk to a lot of people who Tim knew and they would all say oh yeah this other this other guy uh, he came and interviewed us uh he was he was writing a book um this rolling stone journalist but uh he's he stopped he's he's given his uh, advance back he says he can't do it and I go oh okay and then when his book came out he he did which it, it did come out he did, he did go back to it and he did find a way and his idea was aha okay well just make leary the bad guy uh and that's my story uh, and all the people who i were talking to were just like furious because they'd spent a lot of time talking to this guy and sharing all their their stories and you know they'd they'd known leary for for many many years and they, they loved him dearly and they uh, they'd say all these things that happened and maybe on one occasion they had a fallout and it would just be that fallout that sort of made it into the book so there was there was a lot of real anger um and and the book that takes the view that oh he was the bad guy has been very influential and there's this notion with leary that you get the timothy leary you deserve you know that that, that comes down to all what we're talking about this sort of all these different postmodern perspectives that that how you see uh, him says as much about you as it as it as it does him you could write um, a book where Timothy Levy was, was the hero, where you he could write a book, he was he was the villain, where he was a fool, where he was a he was a clown. It was there's a hundred different ways you could sort of interpret the thing the things that happened. Uh and it's you have to take some responsibility for um the what you're projecting out on, onto what happened.
3: Yeah. And and I think like with everything we've been talking about, it's important to be many modeled here. They're all they're all true on some level. But I want to bring one more quote from your book real quick, because this seems to me to be the, the, the key around him and the key around what he represented, which is. And I think this is actually you speaking in the book that Leary argued that it was crazy to live in a reality that was negative and unrewarding, mm. because there are an infinite number of other realities that the brain could use instead. This is the idea that underpins the majority of Leary's philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that turns people off of him, and 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 became the thing that turned many people off of the counterculture, right, in a bigger way, and and lost a lot of ideas that I think were important for for a generation. Is here is a guy, his first wife commits suicide when while he is having an affair. His daughter later commits suicide. He ends up in jail. This like sort of string of wives who've been quite harmed by him. One of what Rosemary is on the run for you know most of her life from the law and and, and so on. Um, he does not have a great relationship with his son. And there's this way of looking at him that y- he takes a substance which is supposed to be ego dissolving, and he becomes this unbelievable ego monster who like runs through life causing wreckage of uh, in, in the lives of the people closest to him bopping into new realities and then sort of towards the end says like nobody's ever been happier than me and like i think that's the part of leary that that the people recoil from
2: yeah yeah but uh, that's very early in you know that, that shift we were talking through through the through this sort of postmodern world into this metamodern you know that's the sort of thing we're learning from now Yeah, you know, that he was very much a sort of pioneer in this new territory um and so we're learning where he went wrong on many levels and then trying not to, to, to do that ourselves. Um, and which is all valid. Um, it still doesn't take away from the, the, the things he did, the 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 ideas that he expressed that are still useful to us. We still get a lot from from, from what he did, but we can also learn from from the, exactly those sort of mistakes. That whole that whole ego thing in in the uh, psychedelic counterculture is, you know, exactly. I totally agree. Totally agree. But that's actually the set and setting dimension. This is really interesting to me. So
3: uh, I'm I'm fascinated by psychedelics, and fascinated I think largely for for the thing that's coming through in a bunch of your books. I'm fascinated that our sense of reality is so thin. That a couple micrograms of a chemical can blow it to smithereens. Like that's it. Like it's gone. <laughs> and the thing that uh, I find interesting about him as a philosopher, as somebody who is thinking about these issues, is that that ends up being the the core thing that he like that he gives to the culture. But then you get 50 years in the future and here we are in a different set and setting and psychedelics are making this interesting comeback. And I live in the Bay Area, which is ground zero for it. And it is it's become like the set and settings productivity culture, right? You take psychedelics to become more creative. Um, There's this great Onion headline that I love. Ayahuasca shaman tired of helping people develop revelations about their SEO strategies. and so now you have it happening in this other in this other context where the the research is happening in a much more kind of like tight way and pe- people are being more careful with it. It's being sold on things like The Tim Ferriss Show and Michael Pollan's new book and, and so on. My show is interested in it, right? Like I, it, like, I think it's all on some level for the good, but it's really interesting to see that in the sudden set setting that was happening around Leary, it's framed as this incredible threat to the society and culture, right? I have America surrounded. We're not going to fight in your wars or work for your corporations. And now it's like, you know what's going to help you work
2: for our corporations and plan our wars? And it's the same, the same chemical. Yeah, but it's the same chemical in a different situation. If, if the situation exactly. is we're going to see how we can, you know, make money and be pro- productive and and get get good, be good worker ants and stuff like that, you know, whatever you put into that, that's going to be the, the the way it reacted. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And, and that idea of the set and setting, like it, it's so like on a meta level, it's just so fascinating to see it working that way. I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who studied Leary and probably tracks at least some of the way this is changing. Like, do you think he'd be horrified?
2: Oh, on many, on many things, sure, yeah. Um, but, I mean, he, he he was... I mean, this is what people found tricky with him. He would um, just change to adapt to the situation he was in. So when he escaped um, from jail and was in Algiers with the Black Panthers, uh, he sort of adapted to the Black Panthers and would talk about violence and guns and things in a way he never did before. Much horrifying, the uh, you know, the counterculture back in California. But when he got away from that and was with these... Um, in, in switzerland with these sort of you know rich uh arms dealers and and things like that he, he sort of started to dress very straight and uh and you know would drive a porsche and drink champagne and just adapt to that sort of world and when he was in jail he was sort of he sort of grew a mustache and became a bit like the guards the you know the fbi and the cia sort of people and he sort of became like that he sort of it was like that woody allen film Zelig, where the guy just adapts to whatever situation he is in and and you have to wonder if there's a core to him somewhere that's that's still present throughout throughout all these things. So I, I would imagine that if he was around today, he would still be doing that. Whether I'm saying he would be, you know working for Trump. I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but <laughs> I'm just throwing that idea out there. Jesus, I don't know.
3: <laughs> but the idea of him being fully absorbed by Silicon Valley culture actually makes sense because towards the end of his life, he became a um, booster of early Silicon Valley culture.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the PC is the LSD of the 90s, as he, as he used to say. He was, he was very much ahead of the curve at that thing. And it was at a time when, you know, computers were still viewed with distrust. I mean, why would anyone have a computer in their house? it just it just it's just struck most people as absurd and they were linked to you know pornography and they were they were as always these things they they, they have a when they're new they have a slightly dodgy sort of uh, sort of reputation uh, and of course that side of him everything he said has become so obvious that it's hardly sort of Needs to be referred to now. He had this great book, Chaos and Cyberculture, in the very early nineties. He talks about when you're using a computer, your head goes through the Alice window. He'd call the computer the Alice window. You'd put you project your mind out there into into cyberspace, and he he was talking about the the importance of balancing that out with you know in your physical body uh, afterwards, like you know going for a run and playing sport and looking after yourself and all that sort of stuff. Which is really far ahead, really far ahead of the curve. Uh, and you know, absolutely dead right. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, we all all know um, Steve Jobs speaks so highly of the of the acid trip, and it's it's certainly no. Um, Coincidence that Silicon Valley is where it is. I mean, it did it did emerge from the, the absolute you know heartland of the psychedelic counterculture. Um, it sort of, it sort of grew out that. And if you look at early online communities like the WELL, or um, or, the, or sort of the crossover between universities and computers, and and the idea of home sort of computers uh, and psychedelics. Um, there's a really good book that looks at the connection between. Uh, the, the psychedelic counterculture and, and Silicon Valley. And it's, it's like the very the very first the very first online uh sale, the very first online commerce was like, was a drugs deal. You know, it's 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 that sort yeah, of thing. I thought level. that was such a yeah. great, great <laughs> detail. But but let me let me
3: offer a dark interpretation of that, um, which is much like happened with Leary himself and, and a lot of the counterculture, where you develop this technology and psychedelics are technology that is meant to dissolve your ego and throw you through the Alice window and let you connect to other people in a deeper way and be networked and be the us. And then it just becomes a bunch of people who seem to look after nothing but their own pleasure and become like deformed versions of themselves, at least in certain ways. Um, yes, I think especially that in the 70s, that, that especially in Especially cocaine. in the 70s and cocaine. Um, the same thing happens here with these technologies that, you know, we were all going to like be thrown through the Alice window and be able to be in these communities of interest and disembodied. And, you know, who, you know nobody knows if you're a dog on the Internet. And what do you get? You get these individual ego reinforcing identity reinforcing machines where we're constantly curating this um somewhat often monstrous version of ourselves for other people to consume even as we become more withered here at the center of it i mean there's a way in which the 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 analogy between what psychedelics what the promise of psychedelics was and what their effect was uh, over time Actually, looks very close to some of the um, Silicon Valley uh, products that they
2: they, in some ways, bolstered. Yeah, definitely. And, and with the with these things, when they when they're sort of invented, uh, they have goes they have these claims, these positive benefits that they will have, uh, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for them, and uh, a lot of evangelical sort of championing of them. Uh, and then they 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 get deployed, and and people use them, and it and it spreads, and and people start finding the bad things that can be done. You know, companies use them for. Um, for, uh, you know, targeting individuals. All the bad side of it starts to appear. Uh, And then there's, there's always a danger of saying that, oh, these things, they're just bad. They're just bad. Well, but you've got to look at sort of both sides. You've got to look at all the good they're doing and the bad they're doing. This is what that meta-modern sort of approach is. Previously, the idea you go, oh, look, these things are flawed. They're bad. Let's just get rid of them. Let's just sort of go back to, to them. But in, in this idea where, you know, all models are flawed, but some are useful, um, it's it's important to understand uh, how these things are used for bad, uh, but it's also equally important to you to understand how they can be used for good and sort of have them as as. as Tools for that sort of thing, and not just not just dismiss the whole thing sort of outright, which is what we sort of tend to tend to do as a as a uh, as a journalistic sort of culture. Really, it's 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 you get it's, a lot you come across as a lot more credible. Um, as a, a commentator or whatever if you just go oh there's this thing yeah it's bad you know if you, if you if you'll be taken seriously you know you, you'll you'll people will nod and scratch their chins and go yes it's important how bad these things yeah it's very much and that becomes the overwhelming sort of conversation and the fact that the other side of them you know that the, the the things that are, all the things they're enabling all the things they're they're connecting all the people they're sort of putting together the people who are meeting the loves of their lives on the internet or whatever or the people who are overcoming um, PTSD through psychedelic use and all that sort of thing uh, can get sort of swept away because the, the I mean, a lot a lot of this comes down to the algorithms, of social media or the business models of our, our, our press and, and things like that, that just try and constantly, they just need our attention and they need to add, sort of uh, activate that lizard brain at the, at the back of us. Um, and so they, we get this constant sort of pressure just to see the bad side of it and be worried and be anxious and sort of be, be fearful. Blind optimism is no good, but a sort of pragmatic optimism where you sort of understand all the problems and, and you realize that you know, to, that the optimistic mindset sort of you know, finds dozens of possible solutions to a problem where the pessimistic just sort of gives up and does sort of nothing. Um, hopefully in this sort of more meta-modern world, the, what's good about these things will be as used, as, as much as the press just wants to talk about the, the, the bad things. We do need to understand the bad things properly to understand the whole thing.
3: Well, th- this, this seems like a modeling problem in general. I mean, I, I think if you're talking specifically about technology, for instance, the problem is not that the press is too negative now, though I think probably it is, um, and I am, um, but it was also that we were too positive before. It isn't that the only thing the press does is say it's bad. We said it was great, right? <laughs> Everybody was a savior, right? For for years, the technology press was, I would almost call like not journalism at all. It was puffery, um, certainly a lot of it. Uh, it was it – was, evangelical. This is something that I think a lot about in, in in my own work, but it is hard in writing to convey many modeled ism. And I actually think that this is true for a lot of things. So uh, I am actually right after I talk with you, I'm I'm doing a podcast with Gia Tolentino, who's this great writer for The New Yorker. And I've been thinking a bit about her book, which is called Trick Mirror, which is very related to a lot of the, the things we're talking about and related certainly in one of its early chapters to how the Internet went dark. How 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 did it become this thing that, that people feel so frustrated by? And one of the things I, I do believe is an answer is that a lot of the forms in which we operate on the Internet, tweets or Facebook posts or columns, takes, they're like a first dimension of our feelings on something. And so we may be many modeled. But. You can only have one model in a tweet. It's very hard to put multiple models in an op-ed. And so when you have a conversation with someone, as I often do with people on the Internet who are more one-dimensional online and we're having some kind of argument and then we get into this space where we're talking and it turns out we're we're multidimensional. And it is very just hard. Uh, and journalism is often written or it is operating constrained spaces. If you don't have much time, well, here's here's my one model—the model I think you're most likely to connect to and is maybe the most useful at the moment. But the form I've become much more cognizant of destroys the ability or hinders the ability to be many modeled in a way that makes
2: the entire enterprise a lot less truthful to the complexity of reality. Which, which is why we just you know can't live by internet alone. You know we have to sort of get away from our screens and meet each other in in real world and communicate you know when you when you talk if you're if you're talking to someone and you just say you know a casually uh, unthought out idea uh and if it's awful it doesn't matter in any way shape or form you both understand the context you know it doesn't really matter it's, it's part of a larger conversation but that one line on if it was online you know could just produce the most anger and the most hate and the most you know uh thing that's that's why the, the social media is is brilliant for bringing like-minded people together uh, but they need to sort of then meet in the real world you know they they need to sort of have actual genuine sort of uh relationships that get across uh, that sort of barrier that sort of, that single sort of sort of meaning in a tweet and and things like that um, yeah it, again that's that same thing about understanding what works and what doesn't you know and just going for what the most useful sort of tool is, and I find I find an awful lot of uh, whenever I go out and do talks around the country, which I often do. There's the amount of people who who wanted to come together uh, and and do a thing. There's been a uh, this big big sort of uh, rise in the idea of arts labs. I don't know if you, if you have arts labs in, in the US, but it's, it's the idea of people just come together and they just make things and they just try everything, uh, different things for just for just for the joy of it. Um, that that does I'm, seen a real sort of recognition that the internet alone is not enough um I, d- I don't know if you're seeing that over there in san francisco um but uh
3: yeah i think the, i think there's a lot of that maker culture and um you know whether whether it will scale to be be an answer to to what how much the internet is changing us i don't know but but i do have a question on all this as, as we sort of move to wrap up here which is you've you now spent i guess a decade or more thinking about the thinness of our connection to a singular reality, thinking about being many model, talking to people who were pioneers in all this. How do you, like, how has that affected how you move through the world? Like, how do you try to retain that that openness and that multidimensionality?
2: Um, I, I, well, once you've taken the ideas on board, they're no more uh, off-putting than any other ideas. I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware that in my books, and especially in the later books, what i try to do is I, I i don't try and tell people what to think i try and give them things to think about um i don't try and sort of force my truth onto people because of course we've all got our own politics we've all got our own views and and, and stuff like that but I'm, I'm always trying to give people like uh a, a situation a perspective that they're they're so not used to and that they have to then start to sort of question how things sort of fit together. And, and that's where a lot of the, the really lovely letters I get from my books come from, where people have just, I haven't sort of forced multiple perspectives on people. I've just given them ways to start to think about it. And when they sort of realize it themselves, um, you, it's living, living with this is easy, man. It's, it's fine. It's, it's not controversial once you've taken it on board. It's, it's not
3: that the ideas are hard to take on board, but I, I – maybe this is just me. I don't find living with it easy. I find that – I find that as I move through the world, and maybe this is partially my role as a political journalist, but the world constantly – wants to, like push you back to make you defensive to make you say no like this is right and you you are wrong um like i am declaring that this is wrong and i mean there's a lot of things in the world i do believe are wrong right there's a lot of feeling of of of, of a need to be on the right side of things but also it's hard to remain open it's like hard to remain uh fluid I I find it hard, even though it's something I think about a lot and work at a lot. It's
2: not impossible, though. I mean, I I wrote a book a couple of books ago called Watling Street, which was about England and Wales in particular. Uh, And I wrote it around this time of Brexit. And obviously, you know, I've got my own views. You know, I didn't vote for any of that sort of stuff. You know, I I, I really have no time at all for it. But I was able to write the book about, you know, geographic identity and, and things like that with an understanding that half the people who read it, would be, you know, for pro Brexit and Leave, and half the people who read it you know, would be Remainers like myself. Um, and so, although the the topics in there, it is entirely possible to uh, understand the multifaceted uh, viewpoints of your readers um, when you're. When you're writing, at least that's what I certainly, certainly try to do anyway. I'm not perfect, obviously we, we make mistakes and, and sometimes for the sake of a good joke, you just want to sort of <laughs> lash something out there. Um but 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 recognizing that you're 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 talking to all these different perspectives, once once you've you've taken that on board, um yeah, that's just what you do. That's just what the job is. That's just, just I, I wish more people did it, admittedly. Um, it's it's always a real sort of disappointment when you you have a you know a, a hero or someone you've always liked and then you just and they get very tribal and they even when you agree with them even when you totally agree with their politics because you know exactly what they're going to say about everything they're going to just turn up and go oh this thing that's awful blah 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 and you sort of know that all, already you don't you don't get to, you don't get the interesting unexpected ideas that you hopefully you get when someone is trying to write. With an understanding of the plurality of of the audience, or even of themselves. I mean,
3: I I think about this a lot, but this is this is my request to Silicon Valley. But you were talking about an answer to some of what's happening on the internet being these offline maker spaces, and I, I think that's true. I think a lot of offline things are are a bit of an antidote. But given that we are going to have a digital commons, I think the question of how to help people expose their multidimensionality, expose their pieces of hesitancy, expose the, the the many kinds of a thing that they are, as opposed to trying to get them to narrow into one thing that is easier to advertise to and easier to build a community around. I think that's going to be a real project. I think the I think the great violence or one of the great violences the Internet does to us is it shrinks us down. We didn't expect that, but it defines us by whatever interest we have connected into at that moment. And it makes it harder for us to be messy and complex and then to see that messy and messiness and complexity in others like we we always sound more certain than we are we always sound more singular than we are and I think that it's going to be a project for a lot of people learning how to be human online Um, and we certainly that is not what a lot of the technologies that have been invented are trying to help us do.
2: Yeah, and it's very different for. Um, I mean, like you and me, we're both writers. We both have. We're both public-facing. We both have a, a sort of a public uh, profile that we sort of need to sort of protect, and 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 the the the, the desire to sort of make it a stronger brand to sort of you know help our careers and, and things like that is strong most people don't have that most people they're connected to their mates they're connected to their family you know they're they're not in no way public facing shape shape or form they go about their jobs you know they meet their mates they play football all this all this sort of stuff it's not so much a problem for a, a huge huge chunk of of the internet uh users you know it's 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 more for people in the media sure totally I totally get those problems and they, they need they need to be to be Thought about in, in in great deal, but it's it's that's just us, you know. It's 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 again, it's, it's 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 that sort of recognizing the different perspectives that other people have, and not just assuming that everyone thinks like you do. I think it's a good place to, to
3: to close out. So let me ask you, what's always our final question, which is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you that you think people should read? Oh, well,
2: three books that have influenced me. Um, well, I there's a book called uh, The Patterning Instinct by a guy called Jeremy Lent uh which is a book it's a cognitive history of the world really it's a it's a book about um uh it's about a book about the history of ideas i think that's an amazing piece of work i can't recommend that enough that that's just wonderful um i would also suggest um maybe cosmic trigger by robert anton wilson we didn't really go in down that that route uh particularly um but cuz Yo man, there's there's a whole lot of things that are relevant with Wilson that would have fitted in with the sort of modern sort of politics. Um, but the the they have this notion which they call chapel perilous, this 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 place where all your maps have run out and you you're just lost and you don't know how things are. And it's an absolute description of this sort of, you know, post truth world we're sort of in now. Except they've had that in the nineteen seventies through psychedelics. And the way he finds a way a route out of it is, I think, really useful and, and, and still valid. So, if people are going to start somewhere with Robert Anton Wilson, it's the Cosmic Trigger for you? Yeah, Cosmic Trigger 1 is probably a a good bet. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very, it's very mad. I mean, it's very 1970s counterculture, conspiracy, druggy. But enjoy that. Just, just enjoy it. Just go with it. You know, he's not, he's not asking you to believe anything. You know, his, his thing is, uh, you know, it's important not to believe your own BS, your own belief system, as much as it's, it's important not to, to believe anyone else's. Um, he has good things to say about doubt. He's an interesting guy, definitely, yeah. And then Alan Moore. And then anything by Alan Moore. I'm tempted to say Jerusalem, but I know it's it's like a 600,000 words novel, that would modernist novel that would terrify most people. But uh, uh, let's say from hell. Go from from hell. John Higgs, thank you very much. Lovely talking to Ezra. That was great. Thanks, mate.
3: Thank you to John Higgs for being here. I hope you all enjoyed that. I definitely did. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, and to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production. And my email, as always, is show at vox.com.
0: First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts.